Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. You've probably heard of a music contest called the Battle of the Bands. Well, there was a time in the history of opera, about 200 years ago, when two tenors would duel on stage for the hearts of the music-goers, and the loudest cheers from the audience determined the winner. Later, we'll hear from two celebrated tenors who revived that tradition with a recent recording called Amici e Rivali, Friends and Rivals. First... A celebration of friendship is at the heart of Kate in Waiting, the new young adult novel by Becky Albertalli. The book is loaded with humor and understanding of teenage anxiety. Becky Albertalli joins us now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I love this show. Oh, what a delight. Would you introduce us to your title character, Kate Garfield, and her best friend, a boy named Anderson Walker? Yeah, so Kate and Anderson are a pair of very chaotic theater kids. They live up in Roswell, uh, Roswell, Georgia, which is where I live. And they go to kind of a fictionalized version of Roswell High School. They are kind of codependent best friends. Their other friends call them out for that. They deny it, but they kind of are codependent a little bit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things that they've always loved to do together is to fall in love with the same boys. (laughs) But it's um, kind of a low risk crush because they end up having these crushes on boys who are not really a part of their lives. Like this would be, you know, unattainable boys from summer camp or actors and things like that. And so the point of these crushes that they have is not to eventually have one of them, you know, hook up with this boy. It's completely, like, the boy is irrelevant. It's really just a bonding activity for them. So they compare notes on interactions that they have with him or, like, sightings and, you know, basically just have that be a thing that they talk about. 
Kate and Waiting, at the beginning of this story, um, what it's about is when one of these summer camp boys who isn't, this guy is not supposed to be a part of their lives moving forward, um, but he ends up moving to Roswell and he shows up at their school, this very hilarious casual crush that was like, you know, very low stakes before suddenly becomes a lot more real for both of them. Kate describes Andy as too cute for this earth. How would you further describe him, his appearance, and the way he carries himself? Yeah, so Anderson is preppy. Like, he's very intentional about his style. He'll dress in, like, cardigans and sometimes, like, ties, even to school. He is black, and he's got, like, glasses. He wears, uh, like, framed glasses. And he has a cute little afro. He's just, like, adorable with dimples. And Kate absolutely loves him. She doesn't have a crush on him. She just (laughs) adores him, thinks he is, you know, the best, most talented, most interesting person. Um, And he's one of the most important people in her world. You mentioned the setting for this story is a high school in Roswell, Georgia. Kate, Andy, and their friends, their squad, (laughs) are theater kids, and the villains are the suburban athletic subtypes the theater kids refer to as F. boys (laughs) this is radio we can't say the full name but they are f boys there are f girls too why are the theater kids instantly recognizable i think kate describes it as something i may be misquoting myself here but as each of them move around like they are under their own tiny spotlight (laughs) (laughs) i love it and This book is a love letter to theater, Becky, musical theater in particular. The chapter headings are titled Scenes, and you even include an overture (laughs) rather than a prologue. Would you talk about the importance of the school musical and how this story unfolds? I don't think this story would be what it is without the musical theater setting. That was always a part of it, even from the very beginning. That absolutely comes from my own high school experiences. I went to Riverwood and Sandy Springs, and I was absolutely a theater kid. But it was like my whole entire life in high school. Oh, Just so central to my identity. It was the place that I felt most at home being with those people, working on something creative and everybody kind of had their own role to play. And like, we'd be like staying there late for rehearsal and coming in and doing like set design and tech stuff. And it was, you know, it was just such a cool and unique experience. And I think for Kate and Waiting, it was really important to me to capture that, like even beyond just the main characters being theater kids, I wanted that setting to feel like it felt as much as I could. Kate thinks of theater as the unrequited love of her life. (laughs) What has been her experience in school musicals up until now? Oh, poor Kate. So Kate, very based on my own experiences. (laughs) Um, So Kate is perpetually in the background. 
townsperson. She's been like just every kind of character with no lines and no name. Absolutely my experience in the school musicals. I played uh, <laughs> I played a townsperson in, oh my gosh, in The Music Man. I played a student in Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. I played a Harry Ishmaelite in Joseph, New Music <laughs> Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, and I of course, played a lady in waiting in Once Upon a Mattress, which is the musical that they do in this book. Now, I happen to know that you attended Wesleyan University and you overlapped with Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> Becky, did you ever appear in anything with Lin-Manuel? Oh my gosh. No, but I have a story. <laughs> oh, do tell. Uh, it's mortifying. I, yeah, so I was a, a freshman at Wesleyan and Lin-Manuel is a senior. He has no idea who I am. Given the way I met him, it's probably for the best that he has no idea who I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he did, for his senior thesis project, he actually wrote and developed a musical that was performed at Wesleyan. And I, so I remember seeing the poster for auditions and it was like, I had just come from high school where you know, my very favorite thing on earth is like being in these musicals, getting to Wesleyan. As I was settling in there, I kept seeing a lot of smaller plays being announced. But what I really wanted, honestly, was a big musical that I could kind of like get into the background of like I was used to. So I was extremely excited and thought that this was going to be that. I shouldn't say nobody had any idea of like who Lin-Manuel was going to become because he has always been that talented and special. And I feel like maybe people who could, you know, see that potential, I'm sure could already see it. Um, but mm -hmm. I was just clueless and I was like, cool, it's like a musical on campus. The flyers did specifically say that it would be to your advantage if you could rap and I could not and cannot rap. <laughs> I, um, I am a white Jewish woman, <laughs> you know, from from Sandy Springs. But um, so I showed up, auditioned. It was an absolutely like horrifyingly earnest audition. I remember it. I remember being in the room. He was incredibly nice about it. I did not try to rap. I should say I <laughs> did try to sing. Um, I was politely shuffled out of the room where it happened. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> um, but I did get to, you know, in, sit um, and watch that musical, like in the audience when it was performed. And it was absolutely wonderful. Like I, <laughs> I bought the soundtrack, like on a CD, I still have it. Like you can really see, you can already hear the like Lin-Manuel Miranda-ness of the music. Mm. Yeah, that's how I met Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> Hopefully he does not remember that as vividly as I do. <laughs> you know, he seems like such a mensch and so gracious. <laughs> I bet if he has read any of your books or saw the movie Love, Simon, which is based on one of your books, <laughs> I bet he would absolutely embrace you. <laughs> now we go back to Kate. So she loves musicals more than anything. She does have an origin story, as she explains it, with a bad experience in a variety show. How does that color her attitude toward being in the musical? 
Yeah. Oh, I love this question because this is one of those things that, you know, started out as just this tiny little backstory idea that I had for Kate that ended up becoming something that I consider to be a really important part of her story. So Kate, when she was in, I believe, like eighth grade, her mom, who's a middle school music teacher, like my younger sister, convinced her to perform one of her favorite songs in the middle school variety show, like their talent show. And Kate, who had been kind of perfecting the song, Somebody to Love, she'd been watching Ella Enchanted. So it was like the Anne Hathaway version of Somebody to Love. And she gets up there in eighth grade, like dressed like Ella from Ella Enchanted, trying to sing it like Anne Hathaway. And she's absolutely unironically like Kate singing her heart out. Kate has a good voice. So it wasn't like she messed up or anything like that. But there's just something like not cool. There's something overly sincere about her performance that, you know, there are some people in the audience who were pretty unkind about it, as people sometimes are. What ended up happening was this F-boy and F-girl in particular, and she had a crush on that F-boy at the time, which made it worse, but they filmed her. They filmed her at like a really unflattering angle. They got the like crease that was in her hair on the side that she didn't know about, you know. They just basically took a recording of the entire performance, posted it on Instagram and mocked Kate. And then somebody set up an entire Instagram account where it was like really just unflattering like screen grabs of that performance. Kate is a little bit scarred by that. And she's really excited in Kate and waiting to be cast in a role for the very first time where she is like a character with a name who has solos and like sings songs on stage. But there is a part of her that carries that fear around. It is really scary to put yourself out there creatively, you know, to be mocked for your own sincerity and then to have to go out there and do it again. That's something I experienced as an author, and I think I poured that into Kate. Yes, any creative. You put your heart, your whole being into your art, and it's there in public for anyone to love or hate. And people can be cruel, and kids can be especially cruel. One difference that's pointed out in this story is that in a variety show, you are yourself. In a musical, as one of the characters loves to point out, in a musical, you have the security of being someone else, of saying someone else's words. So I look forward to speaking with you about inclusivity. Inclusivity is central to your writing, Becky, and that theme is essential to Caden Waiting. Let's talk about the squad, the circle of close friends that Kate refers to as her squad. Kate and Anderson, who, again, is her very best friend, they are best friends with another pair of best friends. And the four of them together refer to themselves as the squad. That's like they call themselves that semi-ironically, I would say. 
And the other two members of the squad are two girls named Raina and Brandy. So Raina is a white trans girl who, you know, socially transitioned quite young in elementary school. And Brandy is Mexican and she, throughout the story, does not use any kind of sexuality label. That's like a big mystery. I mean, it's not a preoccupying mystery, but it's just something that like Kate doesn't know. Actually, Kate herself never uses any sexuality labels. And Anderson is black and gay. Kate is white and Jewish. And I would definitely say the story is not about any of those characteristics or like the experience of being a member of those communities but that's definitely a part of you know each of these characters and who they are and what their experiences have looked like that's something that's always been really important to me in all of my books you establish everyone's differences early on in the stories so that we see them without those differences Is this an ideal you're trying to impress upon young adult readers? Or do you think kids are more accepting of diversity than we realize? Yeah, I I mean, I definitely am not trying to, you know, impress any ideal upon readers. Like, I mean, I love Gen Z. They, you know, to generalize, just tend to be a very thoughtful, inclusive group of people. So they don't need me kind of telling them to be thoughtful and inclusive. I think one of the reasons why I tend to try to make note of some of my characters' identities earlier in the book is that we as readers often will default to assuming characters are from majority communities when reading (laughs) unless stated otherwise. I definitely want to say that Kate is Jewish because I know that going into it, people are not going to assume that she's Jewish unless I say she's Christian or Muslim or something. Author Becky Albertalli, her new young adult novel is Kate in Waiting. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with the author Becky Albertalli about her new young adult novel, Kate in Waiting. So I've mentioned this book feels like a love letter to musicals. References appear often to various shows and Kate loves every aspect of theater, 
Even painting sets is soothing for Kate. I was hoping you would talk about how readers can come up with a playlist from this story. Oh, you know, there actually is a playlist. My UK publisher, um, Penguin UK, gave me the opportunity to create a playlist to go along with it. And I think they expected me to come back with like 10 songs. And I, it was absurd. I think there were like 50 songs or something. on It was like a song for like every chapter or something. I, it's unbelievable how many songs leap out at me like when I go back through this book. Well, minimally, a few musicals that you think that your readers could consult and enjoy listening. I mean, they're probably readers who never seen or heard of Once Upon a Mattress. Yeah, once I mean, I would definitely recommend like sitting down with the soundtrack of Once Upon a Mattress. I love that musical. It is not new. It is like definitely a musical that has been around for a few decades, but I find it really charming. It's legitimately very funny. Back to Kate and Andy. They share an intense attraction, what they call a communal crush on the new guy at school, Matt. What is the impact of that crush on their friendship? The thing that is really unsettling about this particular crush is the fact that, I mean, not only, you know, his proximity, the fact that he's like still around, but they actually both feel like very connected to him and they have different moments with him that build upon, you know, these connections that each of them are feeling. And the way that plays out is every time Kate and Matt have a bonding kind of moment or something sort of tips the scales like in her favor. That's really hard for Anderson to watch. And then vice versa. They have no idea what his sexuality is. You know, they don't know him that well. And then they're trying to kind of navigate this. Like they are actively trying to put in some safeguards to protect their friendship. Like they are determined to not let this just blow up their friendship. But both of them are finding that they are holding things back from each other because they don't want to hurt each other. That is really unnerving for Kate in particular. She has kind of internalized this idea that like the way to maintain closeness with somebody is to tell them all your secrets, fully open communication. In her mind, the reason her parents got divorced is because they stopped talking as openly So she's kind of like on the alert for that. And it is really upsetting to her to find this kind of off-limits topic between her and Anderson, her best friend. You mentioned her parents' divorce. Kate-in-waiting acknowledges the importance of family. And something that kind of tugged at my heartstrings was, was subtle, but... Kate notes that her mother refers to her house as home, when in fact her parents have joint custody and she and her brother spend a few days at each parent's house. In effect, she says home is just split in two. Would you talk about Kate's relationship with her brother, Ryan? Kate has an older brother. She refuses to call him an F-boy. 
on principle, <laughs> but, um, you know, he definitely hangs out with the F boys, goes to the F boy parties. You know, he's perhaps an F boy, you know, if, if you're not his little sister, kind of. He's a jock. He's a jock. Yeah. And he's, he's kind of a shy, sweet jock. The way Kate describes it is that they were very close when they were little, close in age too. They're just like one school grade apart. Kate in this story is a junior and Ryan's a senior. Kate feels like once Ryan kind of started getting more into like sports and that whole different social scene that went along with it, he really pulled away from her and that he wasn't interested in hanging out with her in the same way that they had when they were kids. And she is aware of that loss, but it's also sort of like, yep, we don't really hang but she loves Ryan, like, and they're still connected. And you can kind of see moments where their parents are being embarrassing or something like that. You know, that connection feels much more solid in certain moments. But as the story progresses, they're dealing with Ryan figuring out his college plans for next year. And both of them are definitely feeling that impending separation trying to navigate it in a way that feels right for their specific relationship, which, you know, has changed a lot. I must comment on your use of teen lingo. I know your children are way too young for you to learn this vocabulary at home, Becky. <laughs> How do you master this teen vernacular? Oh my gosh. It, it makes me feel like so good when people mention that because I'm not aware that I'm doing that. You know, it's just something that gets incorporated into the voice of these characters. I never feel like I'm trying to deploy like teen slang or anything. It's just, this is how Kate talks. This is how Anderson talks in my head. But certainly that would be something like I am picking up from somewhere. One of the things that was really fun and special about this book is I had my own little squad of consultants, basically. There's a real Kate. There is a real Anderson. Uh, there's a real Matt. There's, you know, and like this is a completely fictional story. So this is not a story that is about these uh, real human people. I would never do that to them, <laughs> but they did let me use their names. They were absolutely the most brilliant, funny, uh, interesting people. Um, and so if I had questions, like there were times when, oh, and they're also like my neighbors and like babysitter and stuff. Um, so <laughs> I, did not, okay. <laughs> I did not go to Roswell High School and like pluck out students at random. <laughs> but, so if I had a question about what would an F boy wear to a Friday night party or something, I would get back the most exquisite details and they made it into the story. Like things like the way they wear their hats and stuff, not pulling their hats like all the way down on their heads. Like that was described to me with such precision <laughs> that like, it's just, these are the kind of details that I just absolutely eat up. Yeah. I like cannot imagine writing the story without my spies on the inside, you know, <laughs> so. your language tutors. I had mentioned the way you capture not only teen lingo, but the whole thought process. The bottom of page 214, if you would start with the storms mostly ended and read through the 
first paragraph on page 215. Okay. The storms mostly ended by the time I settle in at dad's, though settle maybe isn't the word, seeing as I am now a human jumble of wires. I change into sweatpants and flop back on my bed, staring at my canopy for a full 10 minutes. I feel simultaneously normal and radically strange, like my brain switching between two tracks. There's normal brain, which remembers I have algebra homework and wants to eat yogurt and watch Tangled. But then every few seconds, I kissed Matt brain takes over. And wow, I kissed Matt brain is not a chill brain. I Kiss Matt Brain wants to swoon and explode and replay every second of today's rehearsal ad nauseum, ideally over the phone with Anderson, because apparently I Kiss Matt Brain is a total asshole. (laughs) (laughs) The timing of your character's delivery, especially that of Kate, is fantastic. The rhythm, the tempo of language is so wonderful. It feels like we are seeing these characters as well as reading about them. Yours is a cinematic style, Becky, and that's been proven with the success of your earlier book, which became the movie Love, Simon. I understand There is another movie in the near future. Can you talk about it? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to be talking about it. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it was just announced that my second book, The Upside of Unrequited, was optioned for film by a pair of filmmakers, UK-based filmmakers called the Shakespeare Sisters. So their names are Hillary and Anna Shakespeare. They are real sisters. Are they real Shakespeare's? I think so. I like, I don't know if that means they're related to William Shakespeare. <laughs> but that's really their name. I, As far as, that's the only name I've ever been given for them. Their debut film that I saw, it's this coming of age story that is so heartfelt. Um, it's called Soundtrack to 16. And um, I just, the thought of them taking on this story, which is the upside of Unrequited, was a really personal book for me. I guess all of my books are. It's kind of my little like middle child book that always seemed like it was overshadowed a bit by Simon and maybe always will be. But when they expressed interest in adopting it and developing it, I see like so much potential in that story translating to a really quiet, carefully drawn indie film. I just think it's going to be brilliant. You know, I hope I hope it crosses the finish line. I've been wanting to talk about it for so long. And the process took a little bit longer. They just the contract process took a little longer than usual because in the book there are a couple of characters that appear and make like cameos who are part of the Creekwood books in the Simon verse. So all the characters who appeared in Love Simon, the rights to those characters are still held by Fox and Disney. One of the challenges was just finding a way to carve out this particular story, like the upside of Unrequited, and find a way to tell it that doesn't infringe upon the like Simon characters. Becky Albertalli, thank you very much. Oh my gosh, this is a total blast. Well, I think that there will be many readers who just adore this book. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Author Becky Albertalli 
Her new book is Kate in Waiting. Becky will be in a virtual conversation at Little Shop of Stories with young adult author Julian Winters this evening at 7. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've probably heard of a music contest called Battle of the Bands. Two or more bands compete for the title of best band, and the winner is determined by the loudest cheering from the audience. Well, there was a time in the history of opera about 200 years ago, when two tenors would duel on stage for the hearts of the music-goers. Now, two celebrated tenors of our age have revived that tradition with a new recording called Amici e Rivali, Friends and Rivals. Joining us via Zoom are Larry Brownlee and Michael Spires, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's nice to be with you. Thank you so much. Well, first, please tell us how the album came about. The album came about as a result of a concert that Michael and I did at the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, we performed together, and part of any duet recital or concert, you have duets that you uh, put as in the program. So Michael and I, we decided we would uh, do Rossini duets since both of us have made our careers singing a fair amount of Rossini. Um, the audience was so enthusiastic. Michael and I had such a wonderful time and it was just a wonderful experience uh, that we thought uh, based on that response and actually someone in the audience recorded the, the encore and put it on YouTube and it went viral that we thought we have something we have something here and we should build upon that concert so we decided that we would do this album uh, of duets and trios of Rossini and never before had an album like this been done so that's how the album came to be mm. now all of the music on this album was written by the ingenious opera composer Giacchino Rossini in a relatively small time period, he lived a long life, and all of the music on your recording was written between 1815 and 1826. How do you recreate the dueling tenors of Rossini's time with this recording? So it, at this time, uh, Rossini was writing uh, not only for two battling tenors, that uh, oftentimes there were about four different operas that he wrote for six tenors to be on stage at the same time, which is, as you can imagine, um, a little too many tenors. Uh, <laughs> um, but the interesting thing about the, the two major stars of this time were Andre Nozzari and Giovanni David. What we wanted to really highlight was this this incredible um, write, vocal writing for these these two superstars of the time in the early 1800s, because in Napoli, during the first uh, two decades of, of the 1800s, the greatest singers in the world were at Rossini's disposal. And he decided to do something that had never been done, which was um, which was exploit these two different types of tenors. It's, it's so interesting, I think, for people to hear that we are both 
tenors, um, we have different timbres, but we can also sing the same kind of repertoire. And that's specifically why we chose this music because it fits our voices. I, I really believe that uh, people will find, find this album enlightening in the fact that we are both tenors and we sing the same repertoire, but we approach it in different ways and our natural voices are different. So uh, it's, it's a fun way to explore the, the, the tenor voice. The first duet on the album is from Rossini's most famous opera, The Barber of Seville. How does this duet illustrate the contrast in your voices? The first piece, The Barber of Seville duet, I think it shows real differences in our voices. Of course, uh, Michael started as a baritone, so he has that baritonal sound. It's thicker, it's lower sitting. Michael wakes up in the morning, he sounds like a bass. So he has a lower sitting voice. Uh, he has a lower sitting voice, and my voice has always been high. It's been one that sits, uh, I'm more comfortable with a tessitura, that means a, a range in the vocal stratosphere that sits a bit higher. I have a higher sitting voice. And so the role of Alma Viva has been a very important role for me, but one that seems to fit uh, very naturally for my voice. Uh, maybe I have a voice that's similar to Garcia in some ways, but uh, I think you can tell in the qualities of his lower sitting voice and my higher sitting voice how they are so different. You know, Michael has a, a thicker sound and I have what people call as a lighter sound. It shows off who we are because people are are then a bit confused to say, is there a baritone and a tenor? No, it's just two tenors with the uniquely different voices. It is very dramatic in how obvious it is. I mean, it's just a wonderful illustration of how two singers categorized as tenors can have such different and beautiful vocal qualities. Rossini wrote in the style of an Italian vocal technique known as bel canto, which emphasizes the beauty of sound and 
sparkling performance. Both of you are experts in that style. What has been the impact of your bel canto specialty on each of your careers? Well, I'll I'll go first. Uh, um, I don't think that I would have a career without bel canto, to be totally honest. <laughs> and more specifically, Rossini is the driving factor uh, and has been for for my entire career for the last 20 years. Um, all of my major debuts in in major houses around the world in La Scala and Covent Garden have, have all been with Rossini pieces. And um, bel canto was really the way in which I was able to learn how to sing as a tenor and how to, to become a much better musician and artist in, in terms of what the voice can do as an instrument to reach people and, and touch them in a way. You know, it's interesting. When people think about bel canto, of course, everybody knows that it translates as beautiful singing. But more than anything, I think, as Michael was alluding to, it shows off the bells and whistles of a voice, what a voice is, is capable of doing. I think the most important quality of that is expressivity. Uh, sometimes they're high-lying phrases that really demand elegance and mastery of the voice and the instruments and expressivity and really bringing out the words and using the coloratura to say something, not just for the sake of moving your voice really fast, but being an expressive artist. And so, of course, bel canto has been very, very important for me. It's been the vehicle for all of my important debuts. And someone told me a long time ago that you have to sing from the heart. And in the realm of bel canto, you can really use that to be an expressive person, to say something. Another example of dazzling bel canto on this album is the portion you sing from Act Two of Rossini's opera Otello, Che Fiero Punto. I haven't performed the whole opera of Rossini's Otello. It's one that Michael and I have been discussing for some while that we would like to put on stage. But the interesting thing, uh, people who know me, they know that I am African-American and Michael is Caucasian-American. And the role that he should sing based upon what Rossini wrote should be opposite. Michael should sing the role of Otello and the role of Rodrigo works for me. I've actually had a contract to do it before, uh, but a stage director, he said that it didn't work because I was a black man and I needed to be uh, a European Caucasian person uh, of European Caucasian descent to be able to sing the role of Rodrigo. So at some point, hopefully I'll get a chance to know uh, where that comes in the opera. An African-American singer performed Otello at La Scala. <laughs> yeah, Russell Thomas. He's a friend of mine, actually a very good friend of mine. He's yeah, as, as well as mine. He was my roommate in St. Louis, <laughs> at, oh, at Opera Theater St. Louis. Okay, <laughs> Russell was 
not only a fantastic interview, but as everyone knows, he's a glorious singer. And it was around the time he came to our studios that I think Peter Gelb had announced that he would only have an African-American singer cast in the role of Otello from that point on. And Russell Thomas took issue with it. And he said, well, if we're going to go there, I hope that doesn't mean that I can never play Pinkerton, because that's one of my favorite roles. And I thought, oh, my God, where, where are we? And what does this all mean? Because Russell pointed out that he didn't think that a white singer wearing makeup was offensive. He thought it was a visual cue. How do you weigh in on this? When we're trying to be respectful, but not reach the point of depriving singers of roles, where do we go? You know, Russell and I, we've had this discussion. Actually, Russell, Thomas, Morris Robinson, myself, uh, some other singers, we talk actually amongst ourselves quite often. And I have a similar view. You know, we cannot take away the historical content or context of what we do in opera. I would like to think me singing a lot of roles in Rossini, and there are a few roles that I, I guess, quote unquote, can't sing because I'm a man of color. But I would like to think that if times were different or if these composers were living in uh, today, that they would want to use Russell Thomas's voice regardless of the character. They would want to use Morris Robinson's voice regardless of the character. I think uh, that we as African-American singers, we just want equity. We want not to be forbidden for singing certain things. And the main thing about all of that is the voice is the thing sh that should lead. So if Russell has the voice to sing Pinkerton, regardless of the fact he's uh, black, he should sing it. If he has the voice to sing Otello, regardless of his color, he should sing it because the voice decides. If my voice is meant for Rodrigo, fine. If you think about the most common example, how many people really look like a 15 or 16 year old Asian uh, woman singing Madame a Butterfly? Few do. <laughs> Few do, but it's acceptable for them because it should be the voice that decides. So I agree. If somebody puts on, you know, um, makeup to have, you know, historical relevance to what uh, Shakespeare wrote, fine. Uh, because if the voice is leading, I think that that is going to give you a much more important interpretation of the role, singing, acting, or whatever. But I think it should be secondary to the voice. So I'm absolutely in agreement to Russell said, I don't think your color should have anything to do with it. But we also want to make sure that our color isn't keeping us from doing things because of underlying issues like racism or discrimination or bias. Oh, that's so well put, Larry. When I spoke with Morris Robinson last, actually it was just before the pandemic hit because he was playing Porgy in the Atlanta Opera production. And it was a good 16 years, maybe closer to 20, before he would even consider playing Porgy, he said. Of course, he didn't want to be typecast, but when the scholar comes knocking on the door, 
you don't turn down a role, do you? <laughs> you don't. And Morris Robinson and I, I don't know if you know this, but Morris and I are pretty much like brothers. Morris is my son's godfather, and uh, and he's my son's godfather, and I'm his son's godfather slash uncle. But we are really like really like brothers, and we speak pretty much every single day, uh, either by phone or text. And we, we talk about many issues. We talked about the Porgy and Bess, you know, a lot of artistic choices that we have. We kind of run it by each other because we respect each other. Morris and I met 20 years ago at Upper Theater St. Louis in 2020, and we hit it off immediately. We were fast friends, and we've had a relationship that has uh, really blossomed into something that is beyond friendship, but really one of my closest confidants and friends. But, you know, our discussions about subjects like this, him taking Porgy or me not singing Sport in Life because potentially being typecast or what have you, it is a very real thing because the discussion has been so much lately about the people that are hiring singers. And so if people who are hiring, if they only have in their head a certain vision of what they think a prince, a king, an emperor is, then I think you're going to see the same things. And so they'll say, oh, well, this guy looks like a porgy to me. Why? Because he's black. Then he'll only hire that person because he thinks that that person should be singing porgy in that only. So we have to be smart in what we take. But hopefully the tide is shifting and hopefully things are turning that people begin to see us. It's already, it's, it's happening, but people will continue to see us as important people that can be, you know, be a Romphis and can be the Inquisitor and it can be the Taminos and the Pinkertons and everything else. If we take the color out of the equation and really let the voice and the communicative artist be the lead and everything, I think we'll be in a much better place and then we won't have to have this discussion, this discussion about race anymore. You, you hear how eloquent and detailed and, and subtle uh, the argument is and everything that Larry says, I, I completely agree with. And this is something that we need to keep in mind as a community in the opera world. Going back to friends and rivals. Some of the pairs of tenor characters on this recording are friends, others are rivals. Which duets stand out most, the best of friends and the strongest rivals in each category? If you could choose one in each category, which would you pick? Well, I would say that uh, for me, the, the, the best friends are Figaro and uh, Alma Viva. And it's this playfulness and this understanding, you know, and, and, and to be honest, it's kind of character wise, uh, it's a little bit typecasting because I'm kind of a country bumpkin and uh, but I like to do scheming things. And, and Larry's Larry's very, uh, very astute and, and scholarly and he knows, he knows, but he also knows how to how to do some scheming. And so they are really good friends together. And I, I find that to be the best friendship on the piece. And definitely for me, the strongest uh, rival is the the Otello rival, because you have so many complexities within the, the characters and and you just have these crazy fireworks where it's basically anything you can do, I can do better, that kind of a situation. <laughs> I agree. You know, Barbara Seville is one. It's interesting how you have the Count who's a person of royalty, but you also have Figaro. And you see how even in society, how people who have a certain gift or talent 
can somehow raise their themselves or their situation in society that they are useful to people beyond their station if you want to call it and how because of figaro's craftiness and wittiness that he is considered somewhat of an equal uh i've always tried to play the count it's not this one who's so removed from the reality of societies you know if you think about royalty they don't really mingle with the common class but i've always thought of these two young guys who are out there in their own rights just trying to live and get what they want out of life and how uh, i can respect figaro because he has accomplished so much in life and he's the guy he's the guy that can get you stuff and so at any level, we always have a guy that you can get, you that can get you the stuff, and that's who Figaro is for me. I, I think it's interesting that we have that element of rivalry. But when you think of rivalry, also what we wanted to do in the disc is to show that uh, one-upsmanship. You know, uh, if you're gonna hold this high note, I'm gonna hold one just as long, or I'm gonna add a high D, and Michael's gonna add a low A flat or something. But it's a friendly rivalry that we also try to highlight in this recording and recording for us was so much fun uh, amongst ourselves and the whole team that was there it just was a great sense of chemistry working together but also friendly rivalry so that's also a big element of the album Tenors Larry Brownlee and Michael Spires, their new album, Amici e Rivali, also known as Friends and Rivals, is available now. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans, Shelley Canavy is our engineer. Special thanks to Kevin Rinker. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.